Welcome to Thriller Premium. Welcome to Thriller Premium. Research, reporting, industry analysis, information, and tokenomics. Welcome to Thriller Insights. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to another episode of Thriller Insights. My name is Carl Gonzalez. Today is August 20th, 2019. And boy, do I got an episode for you. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, I feel like I've reached. This is the first time ever where I feel like I'm breaking news as opposed to reporting news and reporting analysis on what exactly is going on. This is the first time where I've actually um, kind of broke something that I guess no one was watching. Um, I tweeted out on Saturday that BlackRock had come out with their August 2019 macro perspectives. And if you don't know who BlackRock is, take a listen to this. There's a good chance you've never heard of BlackRock. Founded in only 1988, in less than 30 years, this American financial firm would grow to become the company that owns the world, managing assets worth $6.3 trillion. These are assets that belong to their clients, mainly the pension funds of ordinary people, teachers, police officers, nurses, and many more. And that's just the beginning. BlackRock has also developed a software platform called Aladdin to perform risk analysis for its clients. It receives sensitive data from banks, insurance companies, and other important institutions. Through Aladdin, BlackRock has insights about the management of financial assets worth another $20 trillion. BlackRock also has shares and voting rights in many of the biggest European companies, in sectors such as energy, oil and gas, transportation, food, and of course, finance. The company holds public debt in the form of bonds and has real estate interests. And still, there's more. Our rock, you see, wears many hats. Aside from being an investor, it is also an auditor and an advisor. Governments and central banks invite a BlackRock subsidiary called BlackRock Solutions to audit them, and to provide advice about the management and rescue of banks. Yet at the same time, BlackRock is often a major shareholder in these same banks. In other words, the company often sits on both sides of the table. BlackRock Solutions gets privileged access to highly sensitive information, information that could be valuable to BlackRock itself. Does this constitute a conflict of interest? No, says BlackRock, which claims that the company has established Chinese walls between its different subsidiaries. In January 2018, BlackRock's founder and chairman, Larry Fink, sent a letter to all of the CEOs of the companies BlackRock is invested in, asking them to do more than deliver financial performance and make a positive contribution to society. So BlackRock not only owns the world, it also wants to save it? So I would definitely say take that with a green grain of salt, right? <laughs> like maybe not the part about them owning the world and stuff like that. But you'd be surprised, like little information you can dig up that BlackRock Inc. is an American global investment management corporation based in NYC. And yes, they were founded in 1988, just like they said. And yes, they are the world's largest asset manager with $6.84 trillion in assets under management as of uh, last month. Um, and they do operate globally with uh, 70 offices in 30 countries and clients in 100 countries. And um, due to its power and sheer size and scope uh, of its financial assets and activities, BlackRock has been called, um, for lack of a better term, world's largest shadow bank. I mean, this is 
stuff that's out there. Um, BlackRock's largest division is iShares, and that is, of course, a family over 800 exchange traded funds, uh, and they comprise more than one trillion in assets under management. If you didn't know, iShares is the largest provider of ETS in the US and in the world, which is pretty interesting. I didn't know that. But um, some of the other you know, big groups or big financial holding companies like BlackRock are some that you already know. Uh, Vanguard Group, who who does a, uh, my 401k, <laughs> turns out. Uh, you have like State Street Corporation. That's another big financial holding company. Uh, then you have FMR Corporation. And guess who FMR Corporation is? Well, a little Google search and you can find out that it's actually Fidelity. Yeah, Fidelity Investments, the same Fidelity that is investing in Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah. And did you think that's interesting? I thought so, too. So if we look at the big four, right, the, the big four financial holding companies, you have BlackRock, Vanguard Group, State Street Corporation and FMR Corporation. We have one already, Fidelity, FMR Corporation, already investing in Bitcoin and hopefully in the future, other cryptocurrencies. That's one out of three. So today, with everything going on in the entire world, you have BlackRock releasing some very interesting information. And this wouldn't be surprising, but one of the surprising things that I guess most people should know is that basically they have an analytics and risk management division called just that BlackRock Solutions. And this division grew from the Aladdin system uh, that was previously talked about. Well, what's interesting about this is that this in itself and other asset managers, uh, by claiming its own risk management is not separate from BlackRock. Uh, risk management is the foundation and cornerstone of the firm's entire platform. So Aladdin keeps track of 30,000 investment portfolios, including BlackRock's own, along with those of competitors. Uh, you have banks, pension funds, and insurers. According to The Economist, as of December 2013, the platform monitors almost 7% of the world's $225 trillion of financial assets. Imagine that. So BlackRock Solutions was retained by the United States Treasury Department in May 2009 to manage the toxic mortgage assets. That's right. They were owned by Bear Stearns, AIG, Inc., Freddie Mac, Morgan Stanley, and other financial firms that were affected in the 2008 financial crisis. Don't you think that's interesting? I think that's interesting too. And so let's get on to what they uh, sent out here on this past week. So they basically have outlined in a PDF, and I'll put a link in the show notes, that the BlackRock Investment Institute has a macro and market perspectives in dealing with the next downturn from unconventional monetary policy to unprecedented policy coordination. And um, yeah, so the summary is that they are releasing this unprecedented policies that will need to be responded to in the next economic downturn. So they believe that monetary policy is almost exhausted as global interest rates plunge towards zero or below. And fiscal policy on its own will struggle to provide major stimulus in a timely fashion, given high debt levels and typical lags with implementation. Without a clear framework in place, policymakers will inevitably find themselves blurring the boundaries between fiscal and monetary policies. This threatens the hard-won credibility of policy institutions and could open the door to uncontrolled fiscal spending. The entire PDF outlines the contours of a framework to mitigate this risk 
so as to enable an unprecedented coordination through a monetary finance fiscal facility activated, funded, and closed by the central bank to achieve an explicit inflation objective, the facility would be deployed by the fiscal authority. So ultimately, (laughs) what they are recommending here, and it's interesting because they definitely audit (laughs) some of the biggest United States institutions. So I'm almost certain they'll listen, right? Or at least give them a time of day. Okay, so let me read exactly what they're saying here. Fiscal policy can do more heavy lifting when monetary policy alone is no longer enough. Even without coordination, governments have room to borrow and invest more, especially in a low interest rate environment to effectively stir activity. We have argued that there has not been enough government spending globally on infrastructure, education, renewable energy, or other technologies to lift total factor productivity growth back to its pre-crisis trends and boost potential growth. So in that that paragraph statement, they're recognizing that, hey, we're almost in a crisis here (laughs) and we're not seeing any growth coming from anywhere. And so they're informing investors out there and the governments and reading this, this, uh, this report that, hey, this is what we're seeing. They go on to say, furthermore, with debt and GDP ratios reaching new record highs, it would not take much of a shock to growth or interest rates for the debt ratio to balloon and spark concerns about debt sustainability. Hence, high existing debt levels mean fiscal policy is vulnerable to even transitory interest rate spikes. Such a surge in rates could damage the fiscal policy space. This could arise from a so-called sudden stop a temporary drying up of liquidity due to concerns about debt sustainability or losing reserve currency status. That's right. They bring up the word currency. And we're going to dive into more about that. But before I do that, I want to play something really insightful from David Levine. He, he went on today and uh, it talked about all this, but was able to capture exactly what we're facing here. Take a listen. Last January, the end of January 2018, the S&P 500 was higher than it is today. Last August, it was higher than it is today. And what's really interesting is that there's been a variety of different narratives that have taken over in the first half of this year because we bottomed in 2018 at the end of December has been quote unquote bullish. There's been a lot of confidence. Volatility settled down. What's really funny though is that confidence was based on tweets, was based on a back and forth trade policy, was based on the idea that Donald J. Trump will control the markets up and down ahead of the election and get reelected. The narrative didn't really make sense if you think about it. So if I look at the last two weeks where the markets are up and down, where equity market volatility is up, where treasury market volatility is up, where the bond yield curve has been inverting, that's a little bit more normal in my opinion, given how volatile the real world actually has been since last January. Remember last January was the beginning of the end of the top of a bull market. We had 90% of asset classes globally down in 2018. And so what happened in the first half of this year, in my opinion, is sort of a bear market bounce. We had volatility settle, we had correlations go back up. And so a lot of confidence in a narrative that maybe in my opinion, wasn't really justified. So what we're seeing now is more uncertainty. We're seeing that across various different markets. And in my opinion, that's more reflective of the fundamentals. So I think what's happening is markets are becoming more normal. What we were seeing the first half of the year wasn't very normal. And so what I expect is more of the same, more volatility, more uncertainty, and markets beginning to reflect the fundamentals that we know are very volatile in the real world. Now, which fundamentals will matter most? We'll see. Trade war is very important. Global slowing in China, very important. Yield curve inverting, important. $16 trillion of negatively yielding sovereign credit, important. U.S. economy, are we in a recession? Important. So there's many different questions 
primarily macro-related that need to be answered in the coming weeks. Those will probably determine the fate of things, but I would expect more volatility like this and more uncertainty, and maybe even narratives taking hold again, like everything's going to be fine or maybe not. We know for a fact, not hypothesis, fact, systemic risk exists. In 2008, it was proven beyond a doubt that if you have a credit bubble, you can have systemic risk, and that can show up immediately across the entire world. We almost had a global financial system collapse beyond repair in 2008. Thankfully, we were able to repair it. Therefore, the risk of lending, the risk of participating in the financial market is positive. That is why the risk-free rate is always positive whenever you study finance. There is a compensation for systemic risk that is embedded in every discount rate. And whenever we teach finance, it's one of the basic fundamental building blocks. Now, what central banks decided was, let's ignore that. What we care most about is stimulating the economy by inflating asset prices. And we will ignore systemic risk because we believe, don't worry, central banks will be infallible. Don't worry, governments will be able to pay their debts. And they kind of overlooked this very basic fact, which is that systemic risk is positive. Therefore, interest rates actually have to be positive, in my opinion, because of the very nature of, of risk itself, systemic risk. And so by making the mistake of lowering rates to zero and below, the central banks forced the system to underprice systemic risk throughout every single asset class that exists. Now, the concept of negative yields ignores systemic risk. It also suggests that you and I are entering a contract where I'm guaranteed to lose money by lending you money. That is just not something that people should do in finance. So this goes very deep. It goes very deep. And so I don't believe it is a success to have 16 trillion of negatively yielding debt. I actually think it's a sign that the system's actually really in a lot of trouble. You had the Austrian bond up 50% in a month. You had, you know, German government debt up 20% in a couple months. For what reason? In my opinion, no other reason than a blow off top. Quite similar to dot-com, only way bigger, way more important, because this is government debt. Government debt is way more central to the financial system than subprime CDOs or any other kind of credit instrument that's ever been an issue in the past. So I actually don't think it's a success to see negative yields. I think it's actually really troubling, and it's a sign of how far the system has gone. You know, there's one thesis that I've been talking about for the last period of years, and I call it the myth of the infallible central banks. Meaning, in order for systemic risk to exist, there has to be an assumption that everyone's making that later is, turns out to be wrong. And it's got to be very, very big, and most people have to believe it to be true. Right now, that assumption, in my opinion, is called the myth of the infallible central banks. So embedded in a variety of these different assumptions that people are making about the markets is the idea, don't fight the Fed, don't fight the BOJ, don't fight the ECB. In my opinion, that's just not a good assumption to make, meaning, Central banks have limits. Those limits are political. Those limits are legal. And in the United States right now, we had all the former Fed chairs write an article in the Wall Street Journal just in the last few weeks questioning the Fed's very independence right now in the United States. So confidence is also very important for central banks. So what I would say is what level of confidence is the right level of confidence in central banks is a very important question. And how this myth of the infallible central banks kind of becomes unwound in the coming weeks and months is very important, and that could happen in a variety of different ways. Two most obvious ways where we see that happening today in the banking system. The European financial system, European banks, we know they're under pressure, near all-time lows. Japanese banks, under pressure, near decade lows. And the fundamentals of those banks have been challenged very much by central bank policy in Europe and Japan. The second most obvious place this is showing up. $16 trillion of negatively yielding 
uh, debt primarily, the majority of which is sovereign credit. 16 trillion in negatively yielding debt should never exist. That was created by central banks. So we have these very big market signals that are already occurring, which are kind of showing us that we're reaching the limits of central bank power and central bank credibility and central bank effectiveness. So as those unfold in the coming weeks, I think that those will be very important, weeks and months actually, those will be very important um, themes to watch unfold. So he's right on with everything that was discussed here. He's, he's, he's saying the exact same thing they're saying it's uh, it's poetry, right? Financial poetry. So, what's the fix for this? What is BlackRock saying in this in this PDF that they want the world to see? Well, they said that the question and the answer lies with monetary financing. They say the most extreme case of monetary and fiscal coordination is pure monetary financing of government debt. That is, the central bank permanently increases its balance sheet to purchase more government debt and facilitate the additional spending or directly inject money into the economy through a so-called helicopter drop. Hmm, what does that mean, Carr? Well, helicopter money is named after Milton Friedman's analogy that former federal chairman Ben Bernanke referenced in a well-known 2002 speech on what extreme measures Japan could take to defeat deflation. So what does it mean, Carr? Well, helicopter money puts central bank created money directly in the hands of spenders, whether that's you, me, households, businesses, or the government. Rather than relying on indirect injections or incentives such as lowering interest rates, tax cuts, or public spending, this could explicitly finance by an increase in the stock of money or anything else. So they highlight two key points here on helicopter money. First, the fiscal expansion it represents. For example, a tax rebate needs to coincide with a boost in the stock of money. This ensures that any increase in interest rates is limited and there is no crowding out of private investment. Second, this boost to the stock of money has to be permanent. Otherwise, the money might not be spent if the increase is expected to be reversed in the future. If these conditions are met and helicopter money is delivered in sufficient size, it will drive up inflation in the long run. So the growth of money supply drives inflation. We know all that. But they actually have tried this. And there's a first case of hyperinflation. And they have seen that tried here in the early 1980s in many countries like Italy, France, Sweden, and the UK. But I think they're kind of just out of options at this point. And if you look here, they have a chart, and I'll put this in the show notes, that uh, shows central bank government bond holdings as a share of the overall debt are still below historical peaks, even with all the, the quantitative easing of the past decade. Central banks were made independent with a mandate to limit inflation and in some cases were banned from directly funding government budget deficits. The extreme cases of monetary financing getting out of hand are well known and have have a name and that's hyperinflation and we've seen here recently argentina and zimbabwe but how are they going to distribute this car how are they planning on doing this if uh, the you know federal reserve does decide to do this well one of the big challenges is going to be politically right many central banks became truly independent in the wake of the painful lessons learned from the high inflation and low growth environment in the 1970s this contributed to a lasting environment of low and stable inflation as well as a stronger growth while giving monetary policy the flexibility to respond swiftly in a time of crisis. But the post-crisis environment put central banks at the center of political debates and their independence is under threat. So they do recognize that millennials and the mass majority of people out there hate these banks, right? They, they even argue that 
In response to the next downturn, we'll inevitably blur the lines currently dividing monetary and fiscal policy. Without clarifying and adjusting the policy framework, the threat to a central bank independence and of, an, and of uncontrolled fiscal expansion will only get worse in the next downturn, in their view. And this is why they are saying that there might lead to better outcomes and better de facto coordination between monetary and fiscal policy. For example, policy innovations in the next downturn will likely need to take inequality more direct into account to be politically palatable. Not all asset purchase programs are born equal when it comes to their impact on inequality. Policy responses that put money directly in the hands of citizens might be more attractive. <laughs> they literally say that they're going to give money to people. The rise of central bank issued electronic money. And then they say this and it just threw me off. Not cryptocurrencies might achieve these objectives in ways that were not previously possible. Let me read that statement again. The rise of central bank issued electronic money, not cryptocurrencies, might achieve these objectives in ways that were not previously possible. But why are they so concerned about putting that quotation in there that says not cryptocurrencies? Why do you think that is? I don't know. Maybe it's because it doesn't, you know, adjust to the framework that they want. Maybe it's because they recognize how decentralized money is the true and transparent way to do things. Maybe I'm not saying that it's possible or that's what they're saying there, but they did make a point to mention not cryptocurrencies. And what got me even more kind of interested in this was BlackRock CEO Larry Fink. That's right. I remember last year seeing him at the Global Finance View. And one of the things that I caught but didn't recognize until I saw this this weekend was that he had talked about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, but not in the way he had in the past where he literally said, like, uh, we're not we're not sure on Bitcoin and that's still a speculative asset. And we're not sure if we're going to, you know, we are ever going to have an ETF for it through iShares. And it wasn't that because that's been talked about in the past. It was more related to what was going on here globally. And he was kind of in a coy way talking about something that we all know well of. And that's Bitcoin. Take a listen. Oh, I would say probably the biggest risk that's facing uh, financial services, the asset management businesses, um, the move from the United States from multilateralism to unilateralism. Um, I've been traveling around the world a lot. That's probably the number one issue I'm hearing from our clients worldwide today. CEOs across the board. Um, and I do believe the outcome could, and I want to underscore could, not will, um, could lead to a deep desire to create another payment system. Um, I've heard that from sovereign wealth funds, from CEOs of major large corporations, from large pension funds, um, Europe, Asia. Um, we build that foundation of multilateralism, and we were the ultimate globalist, and we are changing those, uh, that, that design. Um, and we're changing the design forcefully on many organizations, companies, countries worldwide. And the reason why this is a particularly real big potential issue is we are budgeting to have a trillion dollar deficit for the next number of years. 40% um, of our deficits today are, domestic, are, are internationally financed. 
And if there is a movement to another payment system as another alternative store of wealth, it could lead to real, um, real dollar crisis. Not the dollar crisis that we're seeing now for the emerging markets. That would take 20 years, 30 years. No, I, I, I think that's conventional wisdom. Just like conventional wisdom about how fast technology changes are always wrong. If there's a will and the will is large, it's less than 10. And it doesn't happen just like the financial crisis that was being discussed before. We saw the, the seeds of the financial crisis. It happens incrementally until it can't sustain. And there could be moments where you're seeing some organizations looking for other than dollar-based assets and that could lead to much higher interest rates here, which creates much greater issues worldwide. Uh, if we had that, that would be a big problem for, for BlackRock and other organizations. So what has a store of wealth that's out there and is a payment system? Let me think long and hard on this. Um, is it the euro? Is it the, the USD dollar? Is it the, um, well, maybe it's a Fed coin, maybe, right? Because they're doing Fed now. So maybe they're, you know, going to make some kind of legal framework with the uh, Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve and create some kind of decoupling debt management monetary policy to reinsert um, back gold uh, that's true USD or something like that, maybe? Or are they talking about something that creates constant fear globally that is decentralized and not controlled by a single entity? Huh. Sounds a lot like Bitcoin, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it sure does. And that was recorded 10 months ago. And what I just read you today was here released on August 19th. So, yeah, let's get into coin analysis. Like um, this year, it almost feels like everything's just lining up uh, when it comes to uh, Bitcoin and uh, other crypto assets, right? I've um, been doing a lot of research on Bact lately, as you know. We released a couple episodes last week on that and um, really dived into what was discussed uh, on the previous episode. I think it was uh, the phase one episode, yeah. But uh, what I ha- forgot to you know, bring up, and this is something that makes me extremely bullish for Bitcoin, not only what you just heard for the past 30 minutes, <laughs> just on uh, BlackRock and, and the potential effects on, on Bitcoin that, that it could have, right? I think it's really interesting to see that you know, one, out of these, one out of these four big financial holding companies, which is uh, FMR Corporation, Fidelity, is the only one currently invested and going after Bitcoin. Well, kind of leading me down that rabbit hole, I was able to find out uh, Jeffrey Speaker, he formed ICE US Trust based in New York, now called ICE Clear Credit LLC, to serve as a limited purpose bank. 
This was right around 2008. It was a clearinghouse for credit default swaps. That's right, CDSs. Jeffrey Spreaker worked closely with the Federal Reserve to serve as its over-the-counter derivatives clearinghouse. Now, during that time, U.S. regulators were keen on the kind of clearinghouse for opaque over-the-counter derivatives as a risk management device. In the absence of a central counterparty, which would guarantee payouts should a trading party be unable to do so, there was a high risk of massive market disruption. And the principal backers for ICUS Trust were the same financial institutions most affected by the crisis. That's right. The top 10 of the world's largest banks, which are Goldman Sachs, Bank of America, Citigroup, Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, uh, all the main players, Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan. Now, Jeffrey Speaker's clearinghouse cleared their global credit default swaps in exchange for sharing profits with these banks. So they were right in the midst of this 2008 uh, recession. So in the article, Financial Post described ICE, which is International Continental Exchange, as a U.S.-based electronics futures exchange, which raised the stakes on October 30, 2008, in an effort to expand into the $54 billion credit derivatives market. So by 2010, two years later, ICE had cleared more than $10 trillion in credit default swaps through its subsidiaries and ICE Trust, CDS, which is now ICE Clear Credit, they changed their name. I would just say their best position, you know, to adapt and deliver growth in a complex environment. They have the um, pedigree for this, right? Uh, say what you will, politically or socially, how that worked out for them in 2008 on a macro and, um, you know, domestic level. But I will say, though, it showed that they were able to navigate this complex environment during that time. And what is going on right now? This same complex environment <laughs> that's happening uh, right now with the with everything. And lo and behold, you have uh, Jeffrey Speaker, <laughs> you know, right there again uh, for this next potential recession, question mark. Um, but this time it's Bitcoin, right? So if we look at Bitcoin right now, it's currently at $10,000, or actually $10,266. It's down 5% on the day. Um, I, think, I think we're going to see our next leg up after we get through August. I don't mind actually putting down <laughs> an actual like amount and day and, and week. I definitely think by the end of September, if not before to the 23rd, I think we're going to be above that 14K threshold into 16, 17K possibly. I think I think that's I think that's going to happen, uh, and I would I'm not going to shy away from that <laughs> statement. Uh, just everything that I'm reading and 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 um, uh, kind of analyzing these days is leading me to believe that uh, if I can't be the only one seeing this, uh, there has to be multiple people out there with far more experience in these kind of trading markets to understand this. Uh, my experience is solely with crypto and Bitcoin and uh, have long ways to go when it comes to financial uh, and analysis and discovering how everything geopolitically and uh, domestically and monetarily, how all that works and functions. But each new day I can learn more. That's what I love about this space. It's awesome. You get in for one thing and you come out the other side learning about uh, finance and economics and why that's important. Uh, yeah. All I wanted to know was about Bitcoin and crypto car. What are you doing to me? Well, I think these all play a factors. That's why. Okay, with that, let's get into future predictions. Let's do it. 
speculative token analysis. These are future predictions. It's time for future predictions. This one's going to be a no-brainer. This is something I've been talking about for the longest time, and I'll continue to hit this hammer on this rock <laughs> going forward, uh, at least until something changes. Um, the only speculative asset at this point that I that I purchased uh, was Cosmos, and that was a while back, and I'm down on that. So uh, I'm holding. That's all I can do on that. So I'm holding on my Cosmos. I'm holding on that because I'm expecting that to show up on Coinbase and exceed my expectations. But this is why it's uh, highly speculative future predictions. And uh, the second one is Ethereum. Yes, I am purchasing Ethereum and I'm gonna keep purchasing Ethereum because if everything goes well, and this is gonna be a true test, <laughs> like it totally is, if BACT launches and Bitcoin shoots up in value um, and we get over 16K, and uh, you know everything comes into what we are picturing, right? For a twenty-eight thousand dollar Bitcoin here, hopefully by February before the happening. Who knows? If that comes into fruition, like everybody's predicting, well, in that case, that tells me that Ethereum is next on that list for back. And if that happens, which we don't know yet, we don't know, we don't know that for certain. But if that gets cleared by the COTC as a commodity. Well, then Ethereum is going to be a highly, <laughs> you know, it's people are going to want to hold that coin and people are going to want to speculate on it and people are going to want to invest in it and they're going to want to return on it. Um, so right now it's at $189. I'm still purchasing at that price. If it's under $200, I'm buying. I don't, I don't foresee it dropping back down to $80 again. I know there's a lot of people saying, hey, it's gonna get down to $80. I don't think that's gonna happen just because we have everything rolling out October 3rd. And we'll, we'll talk about that more during the week. But once that, once proof of stake gets implemented, once we get that first phase going for Ethereum 2.0, once we get all that rolling out, I think we're gonna see Ethereum rise in value. And right now, if I could tell you to buy Bitcoin at $2,800, would you have bought it? Of course you would have, because you would have known you were gonna get you know, a 10X return here in about three months, right? You would have known that in December you would have bought it. Well, that's what I did. I bought Bitcoin at $2,800 because I knew we were gonna get that return. And that was one of the main things that I knew for certain that backed was coming. That's why I was bullish on it. I didn't know for certain if it was gonna happen, but I, I was I was feeling strong enough and I'd done enough research to know that that was a possibility. The same thing as I'm saying right now for Ethereum, $189 for Ethereum tells me that's a possibility that we're gonna see Ethereum launch and hopefully it gets cleared as a CFTC um, commodity. If it does, then yes, Ethereum will launch at some point with back and if that happens, well, there's a good possibility it could 10x or 7x, 5x, 4x. You know, you make the pick. I think that I think that is a full-on bet. Do I think Ethereum is going to rise in price by the end of the year? I, I certainly do so. I, I certainly do. I still am holding my breath for $500 Ethereum by the end of the year. I'd be really shocked if we don't get there. But this is why we have this in uh, speculative assets and future predictions, because no one can be certain on this stuff. But uh, I feel like I've done enough research to have that certainty. Okay. A 
you know, it really blew my mind today that you have four, you know, global investment management corporations handling trillions of dollars worth of assets under their management. Just blew my mind. Just couldn't believe it. Um, and what was even more astonishing is that one of the four is really bullish on Bitcoin. That was also interesting. And what was more informing than anything was the fact that when these people talk, it makes sense to listen to what they're saying, <laughs> or at least dive into what they're talking about, or try to understand where they're looking towards. Because at the end of the day, those are big, big ships, and you want to pay attention to what kind of waves they're making, because those will be tsunami in proportion. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Okay, see you guys tomorrow.